Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. If you've got a Bible, let's grab it and turn to Mark chapter 10. Now, um, if you're uh, new with us, if you're a guest, we're in this series through the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is one of four biographies of Jesus' life in the New Testament. And uh, the way that Mark sets the whole story up for us on page one is he calls it good news. Uh, That's what the word gospel means. The gospel of Mark, the good news of Mark, he has good news to tell us. And according to Mark, the good news is that through the person and work of Jesus, God's kingdom has invaded our broken world to make it new. That's what this book is about. And uh, today we're going to be looking at two stories, uh, the first of which is going to positively illustrate for us how we can line ourselves up to experience that good news, to receive that good news. And then the second story is going to talk about some barriers that would keep us from experiencing um, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And I think together these stories uh, really help us understand something that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark and surely something you've seen in your own life if you've been paying attention. And that is um, that it is possible to be present with Jesus and yet somehow miss the goodness of Jesus. And, and I don't just mean um, it's possible to miss the goodness of Jesus because you haven't heard about Jesus. Surely that is true, and that's why we want to um, see every member of this church be equipped as missionaries to go into our workplaces and proclaim his goodness. We want everyone to know about Jesus, but we, we see in Mark, and I think if you're honest, what you have seen in your own life, what I've surely seen, is there could be moments where we can come face to face with Jesus and yet be missing the goodness of Jesus. Um, that's certainly true of the religious leaders. We saw this last week. They have several interactions with him, and I think if they were writing the book, they would not put the word gospel on the front. They've just missed the good news of Jesus. And again, if I could just bring that home a little more honestly, I think it's possible, um, and it certainly happened um, to me on days and seasons to come into a place like this and uh, hear God's word proclaimed, uh, to sing songs. Like, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, um, but you can sing about the goodness of Jesus like we just did, and yet feel in your gut, I'm not sure that I'm experiencing this right now. I, I know intellectually it's good, but I'm not sure that that's connected to my life right now. It is possible to miss the goodness of Jesus. And what these stories today are going to do um, is uh, help us understand why that is. And um, I've been praying that by God's grace, these stories might work together to help us enter into and experience more fully the goodness of the good news this morning. You ready? All right. Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 13. It says this. Here's story number one. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus saw it, he was, oh, excuse me, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms, and he blessed them, and he laid hands on them. So um, here's, how, um, here's how we line ourselves up to experience the good news. Uh, we have to become childlike. Uh, and that's a really interesting thing for Jesus to say, because in his culture, they did not They did not really value children. Uh, In that culture, uh, they looked at children as kind of of a, maybe the way we would say it is to be seen and not heard. They didn't see them as contributing members of the society. And so they're like, you just stay over there. In some cases, children were actively viewed as a nuisance. They didn't really have any social standing in the society. Which explains the reaction of the disciples. When um, all these kids start coming to Jesus, it seems like their parents brought them to meet Jesus. The disciples, they go, get out of here. You're nobody. What do you do? We don't have time for you. We didn't sign up for kids' ministry. Which I just want to say this as an aside. I want you to notice how valuable children's ministry is to Jesus. I almost did a whole sermon on this. We'll have to go there someday. But let me just say for today that Jesus loves kids and so should we. 
Um, see, I think there's sometimes this idea that children's ministry is like a junior varsity ministry, that if you really want to have a teaching platform, you get in here to be with the kids, that's uh, kind of second rate. And what I want you to see is Jesus doesn't see it as a junior varsity ministry. The disciples do. They're like, get out of here. And Jesus gets mad at them. He's like, come on, what do you got? What do you, th- what's wrong with you guys? Don't hinder these kids from coming to me. And he, he picks them up. Like, just imagine it, stinky diapers and all. The word for children here, it's a word for little children, which is why some of your translations say little children, young children, possibly infants. And he picks them up, stinky diapers and all. And he puts them in his lap and he blesses them and he prays for them. I mean, how cool would it be to be prayed for by Jesus? Um, here's the point. Jesus loves these children, not because of what they bring to the table. Uh, the culture was right. These kids aren't really contributing members of the household yet. We have a five-year-old, four-year-old, three-year-old. They think they do chores. They are not helping yet. And yet Jesus loves these children because they have been made in his image. They are valuable to him. And so he says, let the children come to me. I love them. Don't you dare hinder them from coming to me. And he picks them up and he prays for them and blesses them. So let me just say this to all of you who are serving in children's ministry, and I'm going to speak right to the camera right now because I know many of you are serving right now and will be watching this later. I just want to say thank you for the ministry um, that you are doing because you are doing a ministry that is near and dear to the heart of Jesus and near and dear to the heart of this church. And so thank you for connecting and helping week in and week out our children learn about the God who knows and loves them. Thank you for the ministry that you are doing. So that's Jesus. He signs up for children's ministry. He loves children. Um, the disciples, they, they think they're too cool for school. They try to send these kids away. And he says, no, let them come to me. Um, and he says this for two reasons. Number one, like I said, he loves children. They're valuable to him. Um, but then what he does is in typical Jesus fashion is he, he takes this as a teachable moment. So he not only says, let the children come to me. I want to love them, minister, care to serve them. But he, he also says, hey, fellas, uh, there's something I need to talk to you about. Because, see, the, the way that they react to these children, it was very understandable by the culture in their day. They're really just acting out of the culture they're in. But it's not understandable with the kingdom culture. Jesus' kingdom has a new way that he wants to teach us to relate to others. And so he says to his disciples, hey, fellas, we need to talk. Because the way that you just shoot those kids away shows that you've completely misunderstood my entire message. What he says to them is he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child, like one of these children, will not be able to enter it. Um, So what he's saying is not only should you have not sent the kids away, but in fact, you could learn a thing or two from these children. Now, I can just hear the objections already from the disciples. Like, but Jesus, they can't even clean their own room yet. Like, they can't even drive a camel. They can't do anything useful to our society. What are we going to learn from them? Like, we're disciples of a very important teacher. What do we have to learn from these children? They bring absolutely nothing to the table except stinky diapers to have to change. And Jesus is like, exactly. Exactly. That is the entire point. See, children don't come with a resume saying, here's all the things I have to offer you, Jesus. Here's why you should love me. Children just come empty-handed with need. They just come knowing, I I have nothing I can offer Jesus, but I believe Jesus has something he can offer me. And they might not theologically say it that clearly, but that's what they mean when they go up, up, up. Jesus is saying, you have a thing or two to learn from that posture. He says, unless you can come to me like this, you will never be able to experience life in my kingdom. And that's what childlike faith is. So when I said earlier we have to become childlike, um, I don't mean that we have to become childish in our thinking. The Bible distinguishes childlike faith from childish thinking. The Bible is going to say childlike faith that comes to God empty-handed with need and says, up, I need help, I need you to save me, I'm not trying to build my resume and prove myself to you, I'm just asking you to be God and to be good. That is something that Jesus is commending here. That's different from um, childish thinking uh, that seeks to remain uninformed and never grow into our responsibilities. The Bible talks about those as separate things. That's another sermon for another time, but don't be childish in your thinking is something the Bible says. It's good to grow up, it's good to mature, but as we grow and mature, we must remain childlike in our faith. We must not think just because 
I am more mature than I was a year ago. I need Jesus less today. The essence of Christian growth is to, um, by God's grace, grow and at the same time, grow in godliness and at the same time, grow in our understanding that we need Jesus just as much today as the day we got saved. In fact, maybe we understand even more how much we need him. So that's what Jesus is commending here, this childlike posture, this childlike faith that comes to Jesus empty-handed. What he's saying is, unless you can come to me like these children, you can't come into my kingdom. Um, and man, is that good news. Um, I think because of the world we live in, we tend to think that we have to prove ourselves to God. We're so used to uh, building our resume and saying, here's why you should accept me. This is how the work world works. Unfortunately, this is how a lot of relationships work. Uh, and so we're so used to that that we just impose that on to God. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 that completely misses the point. The whole point of God, the whole reason I've come into the world is that God loves the undeserving. That the only thing that qualifies you for a relationship with God is realizing you couldn't earn it on your own merit. It's to come like a child and say, up with empty hands to come with your need. That's what qualifies you for the kingdom. So let me just say it this way. I don't know what your past week was like. But if you are in here beating yourself up going, I'm not good enough. I'm not the Christian I should be. I should be farther along by now. Jesus' encouragement to you is to come with empty hands and childlike faith. And not to come with your resume of all the reasons he should love you this morning, but to recognize that Jesus loves you in spite of you. That's the whole reason he's come. And to come to him like a child and to say, um, all I have is need. That's what Jesus is commending in these little children. And as we get into the next story, we're going to see a stark contrast to this. So story number one, uh, the children come to Jesus, and he's like, hey, fellas, we could all learn a thing or two. They have no delusions about what they bring to the table. They simply come in a posture of open hands, and they get to receive Jesus praying for them. These kids have a great time. This was, today, hopefully, is going to be awesome in kids' ministry. That day was the best day ever in kids' ministry. It's a great story, but now we get another story that's going to be a very sharp contrast to this, and it starts in verse 17. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, and he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Um, the second story here, it's a really famous story. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And if, if you grew up in church, you've surely heard about this guy before. Um, if you're new to church and you were paying attention, you're like, where does it say he was young or a ruler? Great observation. All Mark says is that he's rich. But Matthew in his gospel, he tells us about this story as well. He adds that the guy is young. Some of you are like, what's the number on that? It's relative. Don't worry about the number. He's young. Uh, so he's rich, he's young, and then Luke, in his gospel, he tells us, oh, he's a ruler. So he had some kind of power of some sort. So that's how you get rich, young, ruler. And um, look, I know some of you, you don't feel young anymore. Um, some of you, you're like, I don't feel rich um, although if we were to compare globally, uh, you know, again, that's, gosh, I keep saying this, that's another sermon, but some of you, you're like, I don't identify with being young or rich, and I dang sure don't have power, but what I would say to you is living in this valley, this guy is us. This guy is us. And uh, the thing is, uh, he walks away from Jesus sad. He has a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus, and yet he walks away discouraged. He misses out on the good news. And so I want us to press into this story this morning to understand what's going on here, because I don't want you to walk away sad. Um, let's look at it. It starts off positive. He, um, 
he comes running up to Jesus and he bows before him. Uh, this is a sign of respect in that culture. What, what we're learning is uh, this guy is not like the Pharisees we saw last week who um, don't want to listen to Jesus. They just come and ask questions to try to trap him, to trick him, to discredit him. This guy's not like that. He comes in a posture of respect. He's curious. He's truly seeking. And he asks Jesus this great question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, now, when we hear that word eternal life, I think sometimes in our culture, we think of a life that happens after death, um, something that's not happening right now, but will start happening someday in the future. But what you need to know is in this culture, they understood eternal life um, is really this coming to a place where God is ruling over your life and you are experiencing his goodness, his rule, his way in your life. And that eternal life, according to the Bible, begins now as we come into a relationship with God. Eternal life is this idea of experiencing God's kingdom and his way and his presence and his goodness. And that begins now. And yes, the Bible does say that goes on into eternity in ever-increasing fashion. But this kind of modern way of thinking that you have your life now and then someday you get another life after you die... Um, it's very different from the Bible that says you get a life now, and the life you have here, by God's grace, will overcome the grave and continue into eternity. See, what this guy's asking, if I could put it in modern language, is how do I get the good life? How do I get true life? It's that uh, life that is uh, eternal in quality and never-ending in quantity that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He says, how do I get the good life, Jesus? I mean, who do you know that's not asking that question? This is, in some ways, the most American question ever. This guy wants to know, how can I get in on the good life? How can I experience true life? How can I experience true flourishing? How can I experience true and everlasting life, Jesus? And he comes to him and he asks this great question. And again, I point out his interest is sincere. He, he's not trying to trap Jesus. He's not, this isn't a test. He, he's curious. He wants to know. He's bowing before Jesus. He's like, tell me. I've got to know. This guy is sincere. But we also see in this question that he is confused. And again, I think this is like a lot of people in our world today. Is, um, they're sincerely looking for true life, but confused about where that is found. This guy is sincere in his question, but he is confused about the source of true goodness. Um, and, and Jesus draws this out. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus' response is, before he even answers the guy's question, he addresses that he's confused about the source of true goodness. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, it, some of you are thinking, wait, I thought Jesus was God. What in the world is going on here? Um, what you've got to remember is in the Gospel of Mark, you've got to remember where we are in the story. Jesus has only revealed his divinity to three of his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're still trying to wrap their heads around that, frankly. And if you remember, if you were with us, on the way down the mountain, he says, hey, don't tell anybody about that until after I die and rise again. So we're at this point where Jesus has a mission he's on. He's got something to accomplish first. That hasn't happened yet. And so the world hasn't worshipped him as God yet. They don't know who he is yet. They're in a different period of history than you and I are in. And so what Jesus is doing by saying, why do you call me good? He's not saying, I'm not good. I'm not good. He's meeting this guy where he's at. This guy thinks that Jesus is a teacher. He thinks he is a good rabbi, an enlightened human that maybe has some, um, some creative counsel on how to, you know, better live life. And so he looks to Jesus as a guide. He looks to Jesus as a good teacher. And Jesus says to him, if you think any human is truly good, your whole framework for goodness, it's fundamentally flawed. It's fundamentally flawed. Um, and I think many of us have the same problem today, that um, when we think about goodness, we tend to grade on a curve. And so uh, what that looks like is we tend to judge ourselves based on the people around us. Um, and, and God help us in this day and age where we're um, more limited in our social contact in person, I think we've even started to compare ourselves to the dummies that we follow online. 
And so uh, what we do is we say, okay, goodness is on a, a spectrum from very good people like Mother Teresa um, to very bad people like the politicians I don't like and the people that support them. And we go, okay, some of you got that. And, and, and so we go, okay, and, and I'm probably like in this half here because I've said some things, I've done some things, but I'm not like them. I mean, come on. So clearly I am good. And Jesus looks at that and he's like, come, no, goodness isn't that cheap. Goodness, um, true goodness is so much more than that is how I would positively say it. True goodness is not determined by society as a whole. Because frankly, if it were just to take us back a week when we talked about Jesus and divorce, uh, if true goodness was determined by our society as a whole, what that would mean is if you don't get divorced, you're in the upper echelon. And we said last week, the goal of the Bible is not simply not to get divorced. True goodness happens at the heart level that actually walks in the goodness of God's design. That actually experiences an intimate, loving, safe, harmonious marriage. Not getting divorced. You can be religious and proud and hard and evil about that. So for the Bible, true goodness, it's always beyond the externals. It's always at the level of the heart. And so what Jesus says is... um, If you're going to grade people on a curve, kind of comparing to one another, that's a junior varsity definition of goodness. That true goodness is so much more than comparing yourself to the external actions of those around you. That there's a deeper goodness, a deeper rightness that is found only in the nature and character of God. And it's almost like he's challenging this guy, like, have a bigger vision for your life. Have a bigger vision than being like the guy you follow on Facebook. Have a bigger vision like being like God. Because that's what the Bible says, page one of the Bible. We are created in God's image. We are created to reflect his goodness in the world. Now the story goes on to say um, that sin has marred that image in us, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus is right when he says, no one is righteous except God alone. We have all marred the image of God in us. And And by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, that image can be restored. We can reflect God's goodness again. But at best, it's a reflection. True goodness only comes from God. And so he says to this guy, have a bigger vision for your life. Don't just compare yourself to the people around you. What about God? What about the righteousness that you see in him? Don't you want that? Don't you want a just and whole and beautiful relationship with everyone around you? A just and whole and beautiful society like the law of God would command? Aren't these the things that you want? So before Jesus even asked, this is where I'm like, Jesus was a preacher. He's going to answer the question before before he even answers the question. He's like, let's talk about true goodness. Let's aim a little bit higher. Before he can even answer the question, he says, your whole idea of goodness is flawed. And, And he's not frustrated with this man. Remember, he's a genuine seeker. And I love verse 21. It says, Jesus looked at him, uh, and what we know from Mark's gospel is he, he's probably looking into the man's soul at this point. And he looked at him. And he loved him. So Jesus isn't frustrated with this man. He's not um, trying to correct this man, to embarrass this man. He loves this man. He's not just the children that Jesus loves. Some of you need to hear this because sometimes in the church, um, we can act like having money is the problem. Having money is not the problem. Jesus loves rich people just like the children. Jesus, can I let you in on a secret? Jesus loves everybody. Uh, I, I can tell you with confidence that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That Jesus came into the world because he loves you, no matter where you're at. So rich, poor, whatever your social status is in life, Jesus loves you. He, he loves the children that bring nothing. He loves this rich guy that society would look at and go, he brings everything. He doesn't play favorites. He loves this man. And so now he's going to minister to this guy just like he ministered to the children. What he says is, okay, if you want to experience true life, let's aim a little bit higher. He starts reading from the Ten Commandments. He he says, have you lied? Have you taken anything that wasn't yours? And and look, he's not saying that if you fulfill these commands, then God will reward you with some other thing called life at the end for being a good person. He's trying to draw this guy out. Because uh, is the uh, reformers were so fond of saying the law of God 
It really does reveal um, the path to life and the path to goodness. So you take any issue that our world is just angsty for right now, like justice is something you're hearing about a lot right now. If you want to learn about justice, if you would open up and look at what the prophets say about a just and good society, like the answer is there. God is telling us the life that we long for. But what the reformers would say is before the word of God can be a guide to the life we want, it is a mirror that reveals to us how far off the path we are. So, so the law kind of works this way, is, is you read these things, and uh, if you're not a proud, arrogant person, at some point you will go, oh man, I have fallen short. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no asterisk with my name at the back of the book that says, except you. So the law is meant to reveal really our need for Jesus, and then once we have received the grace of Jesus, he empowers us to actually walk in those things. So the law, it's meant to be a mirror before it's meant to be a guide. This is something the reformers would love to say again and again and again. And I think that's what Jesus is doing with this guy. He's like, if you want to talk about goodness, let's talk about what God has said. And so he starts running him through the commands to let this man um, consider his own life. And so he runs through really the, the back half of the second, uh, excuse me, the back half of the Ten Commandments which are primarily focused on our relationship with one another. The, the beginning are about our relationship with God, and then it kind of goes horizontal. And so Jesus starts running them through these, and I, I want to just take us through them so we don't miss them. He says, have you lied? Have you ever taken what was not yours? Sorry, I want to read this. Do not murder. You ever kill anybody? Don't commit adultery. How, how are you doing with your spouse right now? Do not steal. Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Uh, do not bear false witness. You ever lied? Do not defraud, um, which is his tweak on one of the Ten Commandments about coveting. Um, because here's the thing. If you're a rich person, you don't really sit around. Like Jeff Bezos doesn't sit around and covet my old beat-up car. He doesn't. So uh, the way that he would command this is don't defraud. Again, this gets into a biblical picture of justice, but the idea of the prophets is that um, what you have is not your own. God has entrusted it you to steward it for the good of all. And so have you fulfilled your commitments to your fellow image bearers? Again, that's another sermon. If, that, if that's too much, don't email me about it right now. We could talk at some point. Honor your father and mother. How are you doing with your parents? Have you called your mom lately? You honoring them? You loving them? How's it going? Now, I don't know how you would answer these questions. But I'm taken aback by how this guy does. This guy's response is, check all of these I've done from my youth. Now, I'll just be honest with you as your pastor. I don't know that I could get off that clean. I don't know that uh, after looking at my life right now, my response to Jesus would be like, got it, Jesus. Anything else you got for me? But this guy does. Now, some commentaries, uh, they, they take the cynical view. They're like, this guy is proud and arrogant. He doesn't know what's really in his soul. Um, I'll take the biblical view, which is uh, let Jesus interpret it for us. Jesus doesn't challenge this man. He takes him at his word. It says Je it's after that that Jesus loved him. So, um, so I, I don't think, I, I, let me say it this way. I think we should take this guy at his word because Jesus does. He says, all these I have kept since my youth. What that means is this is a moral guy. This is a, this is a good guy. This is the kind of guy that you would love to have as your neighbor. I mean, think about it. He's rich, so he probably has a boat. And he doesn't defraud. He recognizes his responsibility to those that don't have a boat. So he'll take you out on it. This is the kind of guy that has the state-of-the-art tools. And if he ever, for some crazy reason, needed to borrow something you have, he wouldn't be shady and keep it because he has whatever he wants. He could go buy his own. This is the kind of neighbor you could trust. These are good people to live next door to. I've lived next door to this guy before. He's an awesome neighbor. And frankly, I think we might have landed next to these guys again in our current neighborhood. Our neighbors, we were there for like two months, and they bought our kids Christmas presents. Yeah, I was like, that's a generous, awesome, good, morally upright family right there. Thank you very much. Um, this is a good guy. That's what I think we're meant to take at this point. This is a good guy. Um, and, 
And I think many of you live next to this guy. Many of you work next to this guy or gal. Um, and frankly, some of you are this guy. I might go so far as to say I think many of you are this guy. Um, I'm, I'm still getting to know things here, but like, you're good people, you know? Um, at least from what I hear. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on after the fact, but this is a, this is, I, I don't want you to miss this, because see, so often people can go, this is a really bad guy, and beat up on him, but Jesus, he takes this guy at his word, that he's this morally upright guy, that he, um, and I think this is true of a lot of people in our valley, that, um, that he has worked hard, he's become disciplined to be the best person he could possibly be, and though he is not perfect, Right? Jesus says, have you murdered anybody? He didn't say, have you been angry? He's just reading him the Old Testament law. He's not a perfect guy, but he's a good guy. And I think there's a lot of people in this valley who have worked hard their whole life and really strove to be the best person they can be, and they fit this guy perfectly. And so whether you are this guy or some of you are like, geez, I'd love to be this guy, um, what I would say is you probably live in relationship with this guy. And what I want you to notice, whether you are this guy or you know this guy or gal, um, what I want you to notice is though he has everything, he is deeply unsatisfied. Though he has everything that this culture and society would look at, he's rich. They view that as a sign of God's favor. Jesus will address that in a moment. He's young. Uh, so, so he's got youth going for him. He can live life. Like, he didn't just get rich in the end when he didn't have the energy to spend it. And, and then he, he has power. He has some influence in the society. This guy has everything that people were longing for. And what I want you to notice is he comes to Jesus, bowing at his feet in utter desperation because something is missing. I point that out because it's so easy to look at a guy like this and be like, if I had half the things he had, I wouldn't be so angsty in life. And the Bible puts him here to say, yes, you would. Yes, you would. And if I had the resources to call, you know, Jeff Bezos in here to ask him, and if he could be honest enough with you, I don't know what's going on in that brother's life, but what I know is uh, the people I know that have had the most success in life tend to have the most acute awareness that something is missing, that I've attained so much and yet something is still missing. There's something that plagues them going, I've made all this good stuff, but is it good enough? And some of you are like, what do you know? Okay, maybe I don't know, so I'll read you from someone who does. Here's from the great philosopher Madonna. I'm not asking what you think about Madonna, but... Can we, can we agree she's done some legit art that has really arrived, that has really made an impact on the world? Here's what Madonna says about this, this gnawing for something more. She says this, All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible sense of feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it, and I discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and then I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. See, what we see... Madonna, what we see in this man is that if you put your confidence in your goodness and the things that you can amass and what you can do, you will always be left wondering, is there one more thing I need to do? Do I need to keep this up? Has it been enough? That's this guy to a T. And Jesus wants to free him from this burden. And some of you This guy is you, and and what I would say to you is he wants to free you from that burden this morning. He wants to lift you up and to free you from that cycle of saying, my struggle will never end, and it probably never will. Jesus wants to say, it it, it can end. I, I came to end it. I came to give you a new life. Listen to what he says to this man. Jesus, looking at him, he loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, 
follow me. Now that right there is the same offer he gave to Peter, James, and John way back in Mark chapter 1. He says, leave behind the life that you know and come and follow me and I'll lead you into true life. You don't have to do anything to qualify. All you have to do is let go of the things you are clinging to so tightly in your riches so that you can receive, you can have open hands to take the life that I want to give you. Leave that behind so that I can lead you into a new life. And, and you remember Peter, James, and John, they left their nets behind. They left their relational network behind to go into a new life. But this guy, he has a very different response. Jesus tells him everything he longed for. He came begging him, how do I experience true life? There's a gnawing in my soul. I want to get out of this pattern, this cycle of feeling like it's not enough. And Jesus is like, hey, great news. Let go of that stuff you're clinging to, and I'll lead you into true life. I'll do it for you. I love you. I want to lead you into this. And his response is he walks away sorrowful. And the question is, why? Because Jesus just offered him everything he wants. And if this guy really is us, if, if we really do share this common struggle, then we should be asking the question, not just as an intellectual one, not as an interesting exercise, but why does this guy walk away? Because I would submit to you that what's going on in his heart often goes on in our heart when we're not seeing the goodness of Jesus, when we're not experiencing what's so good about the gospel. And so what I want to do is let Jesus explain what happened. Look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, this whole thing, it shocks the disciples. Because in their culture, they saw wealth as a sign of God's blessing. And so they look at it and they go, Jesus, this guy has everything we could want. He could fund the church plant. This is a guy we need in our core team. Why, why would you say that to him? Well, he's going to walk away. What are you doing? Jesus, like, um, th there's almost this concern. Like, is this movement going to fall flat if that kind of guy says no? What, what hope do we have that anybody can be saved? And what Jesus says, his answer is shocking. So it says that they're astonished, and then he says, uh, Jesus gives an answer, and then they're exceedingly astonished because his answer here is already more shocking than what he said to the man. He says, oh, fellas, no, 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 you have that totally wrong. The Bible never said that riches are a result of God's blessing. Um, they could be. God could entrust that to you, but it also could be that you acquired it through dishonest means, or it, it, there could be many reasons. You became rich maybe through honest means, but Man, God just allowed that to happen. It, like, there's no one for one. It's not like if you're rich, God loves you, and you're poor, God doesn't love you. That was the mentality in that society. He says, fellas, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. And in fact, um, if you have great riches, it will be very difficult for you to enter the kingdom of God. So it's not only not a leg up on everyone else, it's actually going to make it hard to enter into the kingdom because great riches have great power to blind you to your true condition. Great riches have great power to blind you to your finiteness and your true need. And these guys are shocked. So Jesus uses what, uh, what is probably meant to be a bit of comedy. Um, he says, look, look, you guys aren't getting this. It is easier for a camel, picture a camel in your mind's eye right now. Think about the size dynamics here. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. If you've never sewed before, I'm holding a needle right now. I'm just kidding, I'm not, but you wouldn't be able to tell if I was or not, right? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person's wealth to get them into the kingdom of God. And, and, 
<laughs> I'm taking on commentators today because this story, I think we don't like it. I think we're so much like this guy, we try to resist it. There are folks that will say, well, you know, there was this, um, there was this gate in Jerusalem at that time. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but people will try to soften the blow and say, there was a gate in Jerusalem, it was a really small gate, and so if you wanted to get your camel through, you had to take your pack off, you had to get your camel down on its knees, and you could crawl through. Um, it sounds like a really, like, oh, I feel very smart for knowing that. The problem is there is zero historical evidence such a gate existed. That interpretation came about in the 11th century. So I'm just going to go out on a limb and say someone's making something up there. Because it actually fundamentally misses Jesus' point. He's not saying it's hard and you have to work real hard at it. He's saying it's impossible. You know how I know that? Again, I'm a pretty simple guy. I, I don't know. If you want to check my interpretation here, just, just look at what he says in verse, let's see, where is it? Verse 27, with man it is impossible. It is impossible. So he's not describing something that's very difficult. What he's saying is, um, if I could put it in modern terms, I'd say, yeah, a rich person's wealth will help them get into my kingdom when pigs fly. It ain't, it ain't going to happen. And in fact, these great riches can be a great barrier because they can blind you to your need. Now, is that because riches are evil? No, the Bible doesn't say that. Bible, again, we, the Bible doesn't have these simplistic solutions like money bad, poor good. The Bible doesn't say that either. You could be very poor and very wicked and very rich and very righteous. We see it in the Bible. God doesn't care if you're rich or poor. He cares if he has your heart and that you are spiritually rich and you have a long eternity of riches to look forward to. See, the problem with riches, according to the Bible, is uh, it's not with the riches themselves. It's with the love of riches. It's with the love of money. The New Testament says, be careful of the love of money. It doesn't say be careful of money. It says be careful of the love of money, of uh, making money central to your heart and to your life, of making money your God, of depending on money to do for you what only God can do for you. That's what's going on in this guy's heart. That's why Jesus tells him to sell everything he has. Because this guy's heart is wrapped up in his possessions. So much so that when Jesus says, you can have true life with me, you just need to leave that lesser stuff behind and I'll lead you into true life, his response is to grow sad and sorrowful and walk away. Because his money had become his functional God. And this is something that the Bible calls idolatry. Um, See, Jesus is quoting from the back half of the Ten Commandments, but it's like in his response, he says, hey, you're doing a great job with those. You are a good person. But you forgot some earlier commandments, and they're kind of important. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall make no idols. So you're 0 for 2 right now. You've made money your God. It is more important to you. It has more of your heart than the Lord. And number two, you've made an idol out of that money. You've taken a good thing like money and resources that are meant to be means through which we can bless others and help others and cause flourishing in the world. You've taken a good thing and made it into a God thing, which becomes a very, very problematic thing. This is something the Bible calls idolatry, taking a good thing like money and making it into a God thing, revolving our life around it, and finite things can never fill the space that the infinite God was made to fill in our heart. And so when we do this with money, it, it can lead to um, crazy investments that lead to poverty. It can look like uh, really taking advantage of other people to try to get more money. There's many examples of what it can look like, but anytime that we take a good thing and make it into a God thing, that idolatry steals life from us and others around us because finite things just can't be God. They can't be our ultimate source of goodness. And so we'll take goodness from other people. And, and I want to be really clear about this because um, it's not just money that we can do this with. Some of you are like, get them. Let's take an offering at the end and just equally distribute it out to everybody. I read something in Acts chapter 2 about all things in common. Let's go. But let me say this, it's not just money that we can do this with. Uh, we can do this with physical beauty, where if I can just be beautiful enough, I, I don't know Madonna's whole motivations, but I wonder how much that's in there. Like, I'm a special person, people put me on magazines. If I can just be beautiful enough, then I will have a good life. This guy was young, so maybe he had both going on. Um, and, and that's a hard one because you might even be beautiful, but there comes a time, like my grandpa was just telling me this week, he's like, never get old. 
It just takes things from you. Um, and I think the Bible says there's a beauty of heart that's actually meant to shine more as we get older. But again, another sermon. Is that the tagline for today? Another sermon. Um, we can do this with our beauty. We can do this with our relationships. Like, look at me. I'm married up. I have the right spouse. Or look at my children. Look at how great they are. Look at how they're performing. Look at what that says about me. Um, we can even do it about the cause that we are in. Like, look at me. I stand for the right cause. Look at me, I'm associated with the right people, I'm on the right side of history. Like, you can take anything that's good, like fighting for justice, having children that uh, like love the Lord and grow. You can take a good thing, but when you make it a God thing, it becomes a very bad thing. And I, I would submit this to you. One of the fastest ways to know where you might be doing this is to ask this question. If Jesus said to me, give that up in order to have more of me, that thing has too much of your heart, and I want to free you up to a fuller life. You need to lay that down so that you can walk more fully with me. What is it that Jesus could say that about that would cause you to feel sad and a sense of loss? Because whatever that is, for this guy, it was his possessions. He had great possessions, and that's why he felt sad and walked away. I don't know what it is for you, but I would ask you that question. What is it that, if Jesus could, would say, lay that down so you could have more of me, it's got too much of your heart, it can't satisfy you in the long run, and so I want to satisfy you. Lay it down to follow me. What is it, if he said that, you would feel sad? Because idolatry is what will keep us from experiencing the goodness of Jesus. Because idolatry, it works for a time. And so like this rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he goes, no, I'm good. I've got more than what you're offering. I can't lay that down. He thinks what he has is more valuable than what Jesus has. And I, one of the things I've wondered about this week is where did this guy end up? Because idolatry might work for a season, a relationship, your finances, your job, your education, your beauty. It might work for a season, but it will ultimately fail you because they're all finite things. They are created things. They are not God things. And I don't know if this guy came back to Jesus later. Maybe he heard about the death and resurrection of Jesus and, and found true life in his name. All we know is he walked away, and I don't want any of you to walk away sorry today. And so I want to look just briefly at these final verses that tell us about how we cannot walk away sorrowful. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands, oh, by the way, with persecutions, don't miss that, another sermon, another time, um, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are the first will be last, and the last will be first. See, I, I love our boy Peter. I, I love this guy, because he says to him, like, Jesus, who can be saved? We left everything to follow you, and I'm starting to think this was a very bad idea, because this was the guy I thought we wanted on the core team. This was the guy I thought could really build our movement, have we just left everything, and we're going to be, like, left empty-handed when this movement runs out of money? And what Jesus says to him is, Peter, I'm worth it. He says, there's no one that's going to leave behind fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters that aren't going to receive tenfold, a hundredfold in this life, and yes, in the life to come, because it's all connected. And, and you got to hear this. This was written to a church in Rome where people were being persecuted, where you might really lose your father and your mother and your friends if they find out you trust in this Jesus character. They might really kick you to the curb. But we already saw earlier in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus will give us a new family that will love and make up the gaps in our family story. In Rome, when this was written, it was very possible you could lose your wealth and your possessions and your land for trusting in this Jesus. But he's saying, don't worry. It, yes, you will have to give up something to follow me, but it is always for your joy. It is always to lead you into greater life. And yes, you may experience persecutions, but I'm going to give you something you could never find in this life, eternal life, true life that goes on into eternity forever, always increasing. And so if you don't want to walk away sad, you've got to hear what Jesus says to Peter. He says, I'm worth it. I am worth it. And that is the most arrogant statement in the world unless it's true. 
But if you continue in the Gospel of Mark, what we know is that this guy we've been talking about, he ain't the rich young ruler in this story. That if you can see that Jesus is the true rich young ruler who, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, left the riches and the comfort of heaven to come into our world, to become poor for our sake, so that by dying on the cross in our place for our sins, he could trade us his heavenly riches to say, it doesn't matter how you've given your soul over to idolatry and how that's brought brokenness into my world. I am going to take on that brokenness. I'm going to take it upon myself and I'm going to trade you my righteousness. Jesus is the true rich young ruler who's come from heaven to enter our world, to take our death upon himself, to give us a new life, to give us heavenly riches that we could never earn, to give us the type of goodness that we could never find in this world. And when you have believed that gospel, it frees you up to take the things that you're holding on to so tightly and say, nothing's ever going to love me like that. Of course, I'm willing to give that up for you, Jesus. I'm not saying it won't be hard to give up. I'm saying it's for your joy to give up because no one will ever love you like Jesus has. Jesus has loved you to hell and back for all eternity. None's ever going to be able to love you that way. No amount of your goodness will be able to love you that way. But Jesus has loved you that way. And his invitation is to, to let go of the lesser things we're clinging to and grab hold of that truth this morning. So how do you put these two stories together? Um, John, who is standing there, hearing all of this, will write this at the end of his life, and I think this is just a good word for us. It's how he ends 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. He says, little children, remember childlike faith is the goal here, coming to Jesus empty-handed. He says, little children, you've got to come to God like a child. Little children, keep yourself from idols. When we see what Jesus has done for us, it frees us to come to him like children, open-handed, letting go of the things we're clinging to so tightly, letting go of what we think makes us good to receive what he can give us to truly make us good. And so as we turn to respond to this sermon, I, I just want to set it up for you this way. I want to leave you with this question. What's that thing in your life that would make you sad if Jesus said to give it up? Is the Holy Spirit this morning maybe shining light on some things that He's saying, I have more life for you than that. I want to lead you into more life than that. Because the truth is, this is not just a one-time thing you do at conversion. Um, if you're not a Christian, the invitation of this text this morning um, is that Jesus is a better source of goodness than anything you will ever find. And that by simply coming to him with trust and empty hands this morning, you can experience true and everlasting life in his name. Um, but if you're a Christian, I want you to hear this. The way you grow in the Christian life is the same way you enter the Christian life. By again and again re realizing, what am I clinging to more tightly than Jesus? Repenting, letting go of that so we can receive what he has done to give us life. And so in just a moment, we're going to come to the table in communion together. And we're going to have this moment where we can express childlike faith to come with empty hands. And say, Jesus, I haven't brought anything that should make you love me this week, but I want to receive your grace. And I, I want to encourage you to really take this next song as we sing, to really process that question so you can come with your hands open to receive. I don't want you to go away sorrowful clinging to something else because Jesus is the goodness that you long for and he wants to lead you into more life this morning. So I'm going to pray and then we'll come back up. And, and so here's the thing, we're going to take communion together. So hang on, process this question. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing and then I'll come back up. We'll take communion together. Father God, thank you that you are the source of true goodness, um, a type of goodness that shines beyond any, any echo, any shadow we see in this world. Um, I pray that right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would um, work in our hearts, that you would reveal maybe what are the things we're clinging to more tightly than Jesus? What are the things that we're trusting to be more good for us than him? Would you shine your light on that area of our heart this morning and um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, shine the truth on who Jesus is and what he has done for us so that in the light of his grace, we might joyfully say, I'll count these things rubbish in order to have more of you. Um, so I ask that you would move in our hearts as we consider these things. In the beautiful name of Jesus, I ask. Amen.